0: Well, good morning again. If we've not met, my name is Mitchell Carter. I'm the pastor here at Trinity. And it is, as always, a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn them to 1 Peter chapter 5? We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. The first thing that I need to say is that I have unintentionally... Made Weston Duke, who preached last week, lie to you. Unintentionally. So Weston said last week that this week would be our final week in 1 Peter, and then next week we would begin a series on the Psalms. But after thinking about it this week, I ended up deciding to preach 1 Peter 5 5 through 11 this week and leave the final three verses till next week so that we can look back on all of 1 Peter and all that God has taught us and encouraged us with throughout this letter. So Weston is still trustworthy, I assure you. Uh, I've just enjoyed 1 Peter so much that I don't want to leave it. So that's what is coming next week. Our text today is 1 Peter 5, 5-11. through 11. It has a lot of similarities to the ending of other New Testament letters. It's pretty common for an author to get to the end of the letter and rattle off several pithy statements and usually several commands. There are actually five commands in our short text today. It's kind of a final instructions section for 1 Peter. But just as he's done throughout this letter, Peter doesn't just rattle off a bunch of commands. He doesn't end this letter with, hey now, make sure you're good Christians. That's not how Peter has taught this entire letter. He encourages us and he warns us but he follows everything up with the grace, the grace and provision of God to do so. This isn't a final pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps pep talk. The tone of this section of 1 Peter is much more like someone cheering on a marathon runner in the final stretch of the marathon. You're almost there. Keep it up. Don't give up. And just like the marathon runner can see the finish line, they can see what lies before them, Peter's going to end this section with a beautiful picture of the finish line, of where we are headed, of where we are longing for as we run toward Christ. But before we hear God's word from this section, let's ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to begin in the second half of verse 5, which is where we ended last week, just For context, to the second half of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. God. As we work through this text today, we're going to see three things that Peter gives to us. First, he's going to exhort us to humility under God in verses 5 through 7. Then second, he's going to talk to us about the nature of evil, and he's going to command us to resist the devil in verses 8 through 9. And then in the last section, in verses 10 through 11, he's going to give us that picture of what exactly it is that we are waiting for, what we are striving for and longing for when this life is over. Peter begins this final string of exhortations in the same place that he ended the last section. Verses 1 through 5 spoke to the elders and to the congregants about being Uh, to the elders about shepherding the congregation and to congregants about being subject to the elders. And Peter ended those commands to those two groups with a command to both, to everyone in the congregation. This is what he said in the second half of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble." In some ways, it can feel like humility has not been a big theme in 1 Peter. He's only used the word one other place in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 8. But when you think back on the themes of this letter, humility has been undergirding all of it. Peter began by telling Christians what our status is in the society around us, in the world around us. You aren't natives or citizens, Instead, you are exiles, foreigners, and strangers. And then he went on to say that your exile status is going to bring about suffering and scorn and mockery from the people around you. In response to all of that, Peter has said that God commands you to suffer well, to continue doing good, to return blessing for cursing, and to submit to the people, even the evil people, whom God has given authority over you. Peter actually tells us in chapter 2, verse 16, that every one of us, as Christians, is called to live as a slave to God. All of these things are built upon and dependent upon humility. At the end of verse 5, he commands humility toward one another. He says that right after talking about those relationships in the church, the relationship between elders and the congregation. It's here that the words of Philippians 2 are so helpful. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what humility towards others looks like. Not acting in your own interests or your own ambition, but instead counting others more significant than yourselves. We operate in pride when we treat other people like they are there to serve us and our interests. And when we work to further our own ambitions at their expense. Peter is calling us to humility toward others in the church. But in verse 6, He speaks of humility again, but he speaks of a different kind of humility. And this kind of humility is especially in line with those themes that we just talked about throughout 1 Peter. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The humility that we are called to in this letter is certainly humility toward each other. But in verse 6, Peter talks about humility toward God. What does it look like to be humble toward God? Remember, from the beginning, Peter has told us that the difficulties in this life, the difficulties in the world that we face, are a part of God's plan. They're given to us part of his sovereign rule. He's made you into an exile in this world by making you a citizen of his kingdom. He has sent various trials your way as a tool to purify your faith and purge you of all that would truly hurt you. He's called you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who embraced suffering and refused to sin to try to alleviate that suffering. He's given you that lowly place in society, the place of a slave, who is called to re- to endure suffering and continue to do good to those who mock and revile you. All of these things, all the circumstances of your life, are from the hand of God. And so humbling yourself toward God means trusting Him, that the things that He has sent your way are for your good. This is very similar to chapter 2, verse 23, when Jesus didn't return evil for evil but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. In chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. This is what commentator Karen Jobes says about this humility. She says, True humility, as opposed to a contrived, self-degrading humiliation, flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. True humility toward God is accepting the role and position, the life circumstances that God has given you. But it isn't merely accepting them. It's trusting that they are all from the sovereign loving, and gracious hand of your heavenly Father. This is hard. This is especially hard when life is difficult. As we've talked about in 1 Peter, it is hard to be married to someone who doesn't share your Christian faith and to continue to do good while entrusting yourself to God. It's hard to lose friends and even relationships with family Simply because you believe and live out what the Bible teaches. It's hard to see people around you living lives of indulgence and excess and not feel like you're missing out on something. The Lord knows that this calling is hard. He knows that our worldly eyes see the things around us and feel like we are losing, like God must have missed something or made a mistake. So he gives us three motivations, three encouragements right on the heels of this command. First, he tells us where we are humbling ourselves. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now that phrase might not sound very comforting on first read, especially since nowadays we talk about someone being heavy-handed, and we usually mean that they're harsh and demanding. But that's not what Peter's saying here. This phrase, the mighty hand of God, is used repeatedly throughout the story of the Exodus, where God brings his, his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Here, Peter isn't telling you to submit yourself to an unjust emperor or a harsh and abusive slave master. No, He's commanding you to submit yourself to your merciful and gracious Heavenly Father who is able and willing to work all things for your good. The circumstances of your life may feel like you are submitting to a harsh taskmaster. You want to be married, but you still aren't. Your job is a daily grind with little to show for it. Your health has taken a turn for the worse. These things may feel like God has abandoned you. But remember, you have put yourself under the mighty hand of God. He has promised to crush all your enemies and to uphold you. This is what we just confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together For my salvation. Beloved, your various trials will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Peter turns next in these verses. He commands you to humble yourselves before God, to accept the circumstances he has given you, and entrust yourself to him. But just as he has said throughout this letter, he reminds you that your lowly position. The difficulties of this life are only for a little while. Right now you are called to accept this low position, but at the return of Jesus, at the proper time, as Peter calls it, God will exalt you. And this is so important when you get frustrated with the circumstances of your life. You're tempted to become ambitious. You're tempted to reject exile and weakness, and to exalt yourself, either by force or by manipulation. But God says you don't actually choose, none of us actually chooses between being exalted and between being humbled. You just choose when those things happen. Either you will humble yourself now and God will exalt you at the proper time, or you will attempt to exalt yourself now and God will bring you down low at His return. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 16. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Resist the temptation to sinfully exalt yourself in this life. Because God will exalt you at the proper time. Then Peter gives one more encouragement for this hard request of accepting your circumstances and your sufferings. Read verse 7 with me. He says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Being in exile, as we've already talked about, causes some anxieties, some worries, some fears. There are some Christians who pretend that those things don't exist who say that we shouldn't have any worries or anxieties or fears as Christians. That's not true. If you read the Psalms, you will know that is not true. God knows that we are afraid to follow Him when it might mean the loss of friends or finances or worldly comforts. But what God tells you to do with your fears is exactly what He tells you to do with your sins. Don't try to hide them. Don't try to keep them back from Him. Instead, Take those worries, those fears, those anxieties, and throw them upon God. Hebrews 4.16 says that we should come before God's throne of grace with confidence or boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, God is not pleased when you bury your anxieties and try to deal with them yourself. He wants you to cry out to Him, to tell, you, to tell Him your cares. Jesus says this when He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Acknowledge your needs and bring them to the throne of grace. The second half of the verse gives a reason for that boldness or that confidence in coming to God. It says that God... Cares for you. In Psalm 94, the psalmist tells us what the scoffers say to God's people when they're suffering. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. This is what the disciples said when they were in the boat in the storm and Jesus was asleep. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We often bury our anxieties because we are afraid God doesn't care about them. But Peter, who is in that boat, perhaps saying those words, tells us this is not true. God knows the number of hairs on your head, and not one of them can perish outside His will. The Lord is not indifferent to your challenges and to your sufferings. He knows every one of them, and He tells you to cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because his mighty hand is working your redemption, because he will exalt you at the proper time, and because he cares dearly about your every need. Next, Peter turns. He turns to talk about evil, to tell us a little bit about evil and temptation in this world. Read verses 8 and 9 with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There are three commands in these verses, but they all have to do with what is said in between them. Peter warns us by telling us about Satan. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the image of a lion prowling around seeking someone to gobble up is scary. But I want you to see that Peter is not just trying to scare us. He's teaching us something about the nature of evil and temptation. First, he says that evil is against us. He calls the devil our adversary. The same word can be translated foe or opponent. And this this may seem kind of obvious, but it's important to remember because sin always pretends that it is for you. Your parents are so strict. Surely disobeying them would be more fun. Your marriage is so difficult. Surely, getting out of it would be better than this. People online can be so stupid. Surely, blasting them and showing everyone else how stupid they are would be better. The devil convinces you that sin would be better for you. But he is your adversary. Remember what Peter said in chapter 2, verse 11. Your sin is waging war against your soul. But Peter also says something here about where to find evil. We've talked a lot in this letter about the world, the world around us, and the sanctuary that the church ought to be, that we are exiles in this world. And it would be easy if someone asked the question, where would I go to find evil? For you to say, in the world. Outside the doors of the church, outside the confines of my family, on TV or on college campuses, or in big cities, or bad countries. That's where evil is. But notice where Peter says Satan is. He prowls around. Satan isn't static or stagnant. He doesn't stay in one spot. And we are especially vulnerable when we think that he does. I remember one friend who grew up in a family that was very loving a very suspect of everything in the world, which is not wrong in and of itself. But one thing that he said upon reflecting in adulthood has stuck with me. He said, our problem was that we thought evil was outside the camp. So all we had to do was lock the door and stay inside and we'd be fine. But it turned out that there was plenty of evil inside the camp. Fighting sin is not as easy as turning off the TV or keeping your kids on a tight leash. It's not as easy as avoiding the wrong books or finding the perfect church. None of those things is inherently wrong, but we need a clear understanding of sin if we are going to fight it. And part of what the Bible teaches about sin is that it resides in every one of us, not in some sector of the world that we can just avoid. And for that reason, sin often overtakes us in ways we do not expect. So Peter gives three commands to us in light of this understanding of sin. The first two seem to be joined together. They're one after the other. Be sober-minded, be watchful. This is now the third time in this letter that Peter has told us to be sober-minded. Remember, this is the opposite of being drunk. Not only is getting drunk itself a sin, it also leads to other sins because it impairs your decision-making. You are susceptible to other temptations. If there is actually a lion prowling around seeking to devour you, fogging your mind isn't a good idea. So Peter is calling us to avoid literal drunkenness like he's already done and a drunkenness of the mind numbing yourself to the world with comforts, entertainment, and mindless activity. You make yourself susceptible to the temptations of the evil one. Peter also says, be watchful. This fits with his point about Satan moving around, Satan prowling around to different places. He doesn't mean put a lookout at the door of the church and alert everyone when an unsavory character is coming near. Instead, he means keep a watch on yourself and on your brothers and sisters. Where are you lax? Where are you potentially letting sin gain a foothold? If you were the devil, where would you attack you? Where would you seek to drive a wedge between you and Christ? Or you and your brothers and sisters around you? Think about that. Just as an aside, whatever the answer to that question is, you should let someone else know. We are not meant to fight sin on our own, as Peter has told us again and again in this letter. We need one another to look out for each other. This isn't just watch out for yourself. This is watch yourself and help watch out for your brothers and your sisters. Be watchful where the devil might gain A foothold. And then the third command is resist him. Push back against temptation. Keep yourself from evil. And you might be thinking, easier said than done, Peter. You just said that the devil isn't confined to one place and is always seeking an opportunity to devour me. How in the world can I resist him? But look at the phrase that he immediately follows it up with. Resist him... Firm in your faith. There are plenty of ways that we can talk about resisting the devil and resisting temptations to sin. But we don't fight sin primarily with techniques. We fight sin with faith in Jesus. He is the one who bore your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's the one who has declared victory over every evil power and has put them as a footstool under his feet. He has conquered sin. If any of our attempts at dealing with sin and evil don't necessarily need Jesus, then we need to rethink those attempts at dealing with sin and evil. Clinging to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, seeking the forgiveness of, of Jesus. Filling yourself up with Jesus. These are the only ultimate answers the Bible gives for dealing with and fighting our sin. This is how we resist the temptations of the evil one. And notice that Peter immediately broadens our vision. He points us to the church worldwide. He follows it up with, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And Peter connects this with the call to resistance. Why? Because it's so easy to feel like you are alone in the fight against evil and sin. It's so easy to think that you are the only one striving for faithfulness and suffering as an exile in this world. This makes me think of 1 Kings 19, when the prophet Elijah has just seen God, he has just defeated the prophets of Baal, and he cries out to God and says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant covenant, and I'm the only one left. And God kindly corrects him and says, I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I'd like to suggest that this can especially be a temptation for us as Presbyterians. One of my professors at Covenant used to talk about a good Scottish revival where there are fewer true Christians at the end than there were at the beginning. That's what a good Scottish revival looks like. He would call it a purging. And this is a temptation for us. As we learn more and more about God and about His Word, we can be tempted to think we're the only faithful ones left. And God raises our eyes and says, your brotherhood all throughout the world are experiencing these same trials and temptations and are resisting them firm in their faith. Take heart. You are not alone. We are not alone. That's what Peter teaches us about evil and our need to fight it. Evil's not confined to one place or one group of people, but lingers in and nearby all of us. So be watchful and cling to Jesus to resist it. But what does he set before us? Both of these things that he's mentioned, humility under God's mighty hand and resisting the temptations of the devil, both of them are this life. They're confined to the here and now. But what comes next? What is there waiting for us at the end? Read verses 10 and 11 with me. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what Peter has come back to again and again. The trials and sufferings of this life are just a little while. They may feel like an eternity, but they are a blip on the radar. Just like the marathoner who can finally see the finish line, Peter is telling you what awaits you. He first points to who awaits you. He calls God the God of all grace to remind us that there is no other source of mercy in this life or the life to come. God is not stingy in His grace, but is overflowing with grace and mercy toward us. And we know this primarily because He has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Notice first that the glory is eternal, never-ending and ever-increasing, which is contrasted with the brief sufferings of this world. But notice also that it is the glory of Christ, It's not some abstracted good. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This is the glory of seeing, savoring, and becoming like Jesus. Jesus prays this for us in His high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We will see Jesus. We will be with Jesus. We will be made like him by sharing in his glory. And that is the glory and the joy, the eternal glory and eternal joy and the eternal fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit that they have had since the foundation of the world. Dear Christian, that is what awaits you. You must endure suffering now. You must resist temptation and stand firm in your faith. You must follow in the footsteps of your suffering Savior, Jesus. But you will follow His footsteps all the way through. Through the suffering and into eternal glory. Beloved, you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That last time, the proper time, the revelation of Jesus Christ is coming soon. In the here and now, you are called to humble yourself before him. To resist the schemes of the devil and to look and long for the eternal glory of Christ that awaits you. Would you all pray with me? Father, we pray that you would cause us to stand firm. That you would increase and strengthen our faith in Jesus. That we would look to him that our joy and our hope and our love would be found in Him. We pray that you would do this in us through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.